But I feel like we're friends now. We're friends. We're buddies. Okay, good. That was sweet. It was like, what should we call you? She's like, you should call me B. Like, yes, <laughs> that, we're it. <laughs> how did that get you so hard? I don't understand. <laughs> it was like how enthusiastic you were about being friends. You were like, yes. <laughs> Who doesn't want more friends? Everyone wants friends. You know. Hello, and welcome to Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage. I'm your host, Chris Savage. I am joined by our podcast producer extraordinaire. She loves to run mm-hmm. outside mm-hmm. because she's committed to a half marathon. It's true. Is that right? That's why I'm red. She's a Brooklynite. I am. Yep. And it's your here. Mm-hmm. And and we're a, Great. we're a little bit of a mess today, but um, our guest sure isn't. Oh, no. So our guest today, Britannia Bowie, also we call B during the episode. We do. Who is the chief commercial officer at Harry's and has helped them expand their products dramatically, scale. Um, it's such a fun conversation to have with B. So fun. She's a powerhouse. She is. I'm excited. Um, she's also a health advocate, which listeners... You'll hear as we get into the interview, but uh, that's relevant to uh, old Savage here. Young old Savage. You know, we all need health advocates at different points in time. Um, and yes, I was, what do they say? I was felled by COVID. You're, yeah, that's what you've that's been- That's the expression. Yeah, felled. Yeah, felled. You could just say you've been talking too loud about it because that is what you've been talking too loud about. Yes, yes. I unfortunately got COVID as in my whole family. It was fortunately very mild. But was a large, as always, bummer. Um, but I will tell you, you know, throw a little immunity on top of uh, <laughs> on top of that on top of that boosted base, and you better believe I went a little too crazy. I think on Saturday, yeah, I was like, no, oh, should we go for breakfast? Yep. Should we go for lunch? Yep. Should we go for dinner? Yep. Should I go to a tea house and <laughs> see an experimental music concert? Yes. Should I then go to a large indie pop concert indoors at 10 p.m.? Yes. I just like did absolutely everything you could possibly do yeah. in a day. Yeah. And I, I came home at like 11 p.m. and I was like, I didn't have to do all that. <laughs> that was just like, I did that because I couldn't do it before. And like, I'm tired. Like, yeah. I don't need to do this. You, you, didn't, know? you didn't need to cram it all. But you know what? I respect your appetite for life. That's what Thank I'll say. You. Yes. It's a big one. It was funny seeing some friends the next day. They're like, what did you do yesterday? I just like listed it off. They're like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. I just, I had, I had you to because I You were cooped up. You were cooped up. Well, it was a delight to do all those things too. And you know what else is a delight is talking to B. So I, I think we got to get into this episode. We got to get in there. Let's do okay. it. Okay. Hard cut to episode now. B, so nice to meet you. Thanks for coming on the show. Nice to meet you both. How's your week going? Uh, well, it's only Monday, so I think Monday is good so far. It's pretty warm here, so I would say a great start. And where are you? I'm in New York. I'm in Manhattan. Awesome. I've been here for this whole pandemic too. I haven't really. You haven't moved from. I haven't really moved from your apartment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did move apartments okay. and take advantage of the like falling rental rates in the first year, but other than that, I haven't moved. Awesome. Um, well, we're super excited that you're here. And as you know, the show is called Talking Too Loud because when I get excited, my trait is I cannot control the volume of my voice. <laughs> I've been told that since I was a child. Uh, it happens absolutely constantly. Um, but one of the things we like to do on the show is actually start with you. Like, what's got you talking too loud? Yeah, I think 
the thing I'm like most excited about now is, is like health and like being a health advocate, I would say probably on two dimensions, like one for sure, for better, for worse in the last couple of years, I'd have an enormous amount of CT scans, probably way more radiation than my body needs in like a 40 year (laughs) period or whatever it is. Um, And I have found that through all of these situations, if you are not so on top of the system, the diagnosis, the steps, I remember being wheeled into the ER. I'm like, wait a minute, you gave me the wrong contrast. Like I'm not not a medical professional, but just being able to Hmm. catch these things and sort of really speaking up for I'm one of those nerds that reads the like drug contraindications, you know, that fold out, it's a really long piece of paper and I'll bring it back to the pharmacist and be like, two drugs, contraindications, you know, should have been flagged. Um, So a little bit of maybe the medical profession's worst nightmare. (laughs) Um, So that definitely has me talking too loud. In addition to the, like, I have so many friends and acquaintances, people that I work with who are suffering from something, you know, whether it's, mentally, physically, some sort of ailment and pain. And it's like annoying them, bugging them, paining them on a daily basis. And they don't do anything about Mm. it. It's sort of just like acceptance that I'm going to wake up with my back feeling tight or I'm going to wake up not feeling so great or whatever it is. Um, And I'm just a big proponent of, you know, like we don't we don't have to accept that. And, you know, there are things that you can do. um, And that obviously I am aware it comes from a position of privilege to be able to do things. But I think for sure, especially in the last you know year or so, that has been the thing that I am talking too loud about. So are you, I mean, you know, obviously only answer what you want to answer here, but did you basically like um, something happened in your life and then you realize like, hey, I should be in more control of my health and like drive forward? I think I've always been like interested in like the concept of like health and balance there, like my family practices, Chinese medicine, obviously grew up seeing Western doctors. And I always found their approaches to be so like polar ends of the mm-hmm, spectrum, mm-hmm. one being way more sort of proactive and balancing in the end, one being, you know, really great for reactive problems that need to be solved in the moment. And I I found like living in both worlds that there is kind of a middle ground to it. Um, and I think that's probably the biggest thing. I, I also... I think in another life, I should have been in like a a medical profession or something like that, because I love reading science journals. Mm. I love getting to the details and trying to educate myself on this. Um, One funny story. I mean, maybe not funny, but I uh, (laughs) I uh, I was going to the doctor for like two weeks straight and like my stomach is on fire, like my whole abdomen. I can't sleep. And they just kept telling me I needed to take antacids. I had like acid reflux. And I'm like, I refuse to believe that sitting up and eating 60 pounds of Tums every day is like the actual yeah. answer. So finally, I got a physician assistant to write a script for me to go get an ultrasound, MRI, CAT scan, blah, 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 all that stuff. Turns out I had two weeks worth of appendicitis. Um, they're wheeling me out of like the ER. I'm like not super conscious. My doctor's like, OK, we're going to go like surgery. Got to take this thing out. And I was like, no, I don't remember where, but I recall reading a science journal that they're testing a new way of treating appendicitis in Europe. And I want that new version. I want antibiotics. I'm sort of like, whoa, <laughs> prevent surgery unless you're related. And I have no idea when I read that, where that piece of information came and how it like popped into my mind in that moment of pain. But I treated it differently. And my doctor like later on told me that, you know, he was using this as a case study for like 
what to do with patients that have like really different approaches to like really well-known Whoa. things like mm. appendicitis. You take it out. Um, so I still have my appendix today. Wow. Uh, for better or for worse. Never. But that's just like an example of my like health nerd. I love that. I guess. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Mine ended really differently. I had <laughs> I had H. pylori, like a bacterial oh, infection. But that's serious. It was serious. That's a serious it, infection. it was. And so I also I I got antibiotics, but they misdiagnosed it at the hospital. And if I had had you on the case, yeah, then maybe that wouldn't there. have happened. Yeah. yeah. Next time. Misdiagnosed. And then, you know, I won't even get into all this stuff around like drugs and therapies not really being tested on women and the, the difference. We're not just smaller men and there's difference in hormones and all this other stuff. But like if you go down that rabbit hole, like I could go forever. I'm always loud about that stuff. Wow. Well, you obviously have a calling here. And uh, it seems like anytime any of us is going to the ER, we should call you and you should. I know, Sylvie, just yeah, text me yeah. first as you're like, I feel these things. Yeah. What is it? Okay. I have a long list. You can quote the research paper <laughs> and get an experimental treatment and fix all your problems. Well, that's exciting. That's awesome and interesting. And I mean, I, I thought you might say like that COVID is kind of what had you go deep on this. Um, for me, I spent so much time researching stuff mm. around COVID that I never thought I would. Um, and I have a bunch of friends who will be like, now it's getting much safer to do everything. Like, is it safe to do this? Is it not okay? Can I do this after I get the vaccine? <laughs> I was like, well, you know, it takes about 14 days for this first thing, but like you have some antibodies the second time, blah, 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 blah. It's You're just the like, phone a friend. You're the phone a friend with COVID. Yeah. For that yeah. One. yeah. Yeah. So you probably got a bunch of calls when you're like 10 days to five days. Is that mandate real? Exactly. Exactly. Big one. Yes. Yes. Or I just had an exposure <laughs> and my kid had an exposure, blah, blah, blah. Do I need to stop doing other things? Or it's like, all right, no wait four days and then go get a PCR and then do a rapid <laughs> test every day. And like, you're probably fine. Like, like, okay. Anyway, we don't need to go into that, but um, that is super interesting. So let's do a hard pivot. Um, let's hard do a pivot. hard pivot. So you're the chief commercial officer at Harry's. Um, for those people who don't know, what's a chief commercial officer? And also for people who don't know, what's Harry's? <laughs> Um, I'll start with Harry's. So Harry's is, it started as a men's grooming brand back in 2013, focusing on shave first and has really grown into other categories on here. Started, launched on DTC and then have rolled out into retail as well as internationally in the UK, Canada, um, and Germany uh, most recently. That's how the brand started. The Harry's, the company has since launched other brands in its umbrella. So Flamingo, uh, was its first new brand, Cat Person, which a lot of people don't actually know is us, which is a cat food brand. Whoa. Launched a couple years later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have um, no idea. Super not shaving cat food. You wouldn't think it's the same company, right? Um, <laughs> and then Headquarters, which is a women's hair care and scalp brand. So that's sort of like the ecosystem of the family of brands that we have at Harry's. And Chief Commercial Officer. So... um. You know, I've been with Harry's for a long time. You know, I joined in like June of 2013, which means my job has like changed a ton over time. And so when we were trying to kind of catch up with my title with the scope changes, we're like Googling titles. And I remember uh, one of my founders saying, uh, you know, there's this title like chief commercial officer. What do you think? I literally had to Wikipedia <laughs> what chief commercial officer was. And the Wikipedia post said, it's like some intersection of like, <sighs> marketing, product, innovation, sales. And I'm like, cool. It makes sense at the time um, in terms of like the the breadth I was covering across the brand and innovation funnel. But that is my knowledge of what a chief commercial officer is. And, and how big was the company when you joined? 
Uh, that's probably like 15 or so people in a room. And how many people are there now? Sort of New York and London office is about 600 and our factory in Germany is about 600. So just you've scaled a little bit, just a little bit. <laughs> just a little <Yeah>. bit. <laughs> There's a lot I want to I want to dig into here, but I mean, it's interesting because you're so transparent about that. Like, here's the title. Let me just look this up and this on Wikipedia. And like, this sounds cool. But then also, like, I think it's often the case that we want to feel like our careers, you could have, you know, this like perfect plan. And like, was there a perfect plan? Like, how'd you get from there to here? Um, yeah. How does that work? Like when you go from like looking it up at Wikipedia and now, you know, there's 600 people and massive organization, the company scale dramatically. I mean, most founders of a 15 person company wouldn't make it to this scale. So what has that journey been like? Um, it's been really fun. In some ways, the journey at Harry's has been a blink of an eye. I think that we have been very intentional about some things. I think we've been really intentional about um, the type of company we want to be, the values we want to have, you know, the type of products and service and brands that we want to bring to our customers. Why do we exist? I think we have spent a lot of time about being intentional on those things. But with a lot of room, I would say, for flexibility, being able to react to the market. And I think that, you know, in the shave industry, it's changed dramatically since Harry started. And I think that, you know, being able to keep up with that is leaving a ton of room for flexibility and reactiveness. It gets harder and harder because, like, you know, you can be reactive when you're 30 people in a room and let's change priorities over here. When you're 600 people, you can't just turn on a dime and you have to figure out ways in which you can. Um, so I think it's a mix of both probably. And then what do you think it was, you know, when you joined, mm -hmm. did you see the elements of the company and the brand that made it successful? Like, did you have a hunch when you were joining? Like, oh, I think this could really work. Or was it more like, no, we're just going to create this from scratch. I wasn't super sure. I think actually most of the time I spent was getting to know our founders, Jeff and Andy. Um, because at the end of the day, there's so much risk, it's so much unknown. It's really, do I want to be on this adventure with these people riding the ups and downs? Funnily enough, at the exact same time that Jeff and Andy were talking to me about Harry's, the founder of another shaving company was also talking to me about the same thing. <laughs> oh, wow. And so in my mind, I'm like, ah, all these like men's shavings <laughs> brand, like what, what's up with men's shaving? Like I, first of all, I'm not a guy, I don't shave my face. I have no <laughs> idea what it's like. And second, like, is this like movies, you know, when everyone wants to make the same movie about Capote or something like that? Like, is it, is it trend based? You know how it is, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Dante's Peak and Inferno or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And like, as an Asian woman with not a lot of hair, I just found it a little bit peculiar <laughs> that all of a sudden people were talking to me about shaving. And so um, I think I appreciated the perspective that they were bringing, the challenger mindset. Obviously, Jeff had started Warby Parker, which is like uh, was really interesting to me to learn about their stories and their approach. But I honestly spent most of the time just getting to know them and a few folks on the team at the time. And what advice would you give to somebody who, from what you've seen, like you've been part of, you know, something that has been wildly successful and has actually scaled and like lived up to its values. But what, what advice would you give to somebody who's trying to make that decision today? Like if they're joining a startup and they're trying to figure out, will this work or not? Should I bet my time on this? Should I bet my career on this? How would you increase the likelihood that they would make a good decision? Yeah, I think the first one for me, 
you know, what I've already talked a little bit about, which is really getting to know the founder or the founders. And I think really pressure testing that, speaking to more people that they already know, and not just people within the company or their investors, right? There, Those people are highly incentivized to sell you, to join, if, if that's the offer you've been given. Um, but really trying to understand like how they make decisions, especially the harder ones. Um, the second one, I think, is just being really honest with yourself and what you're trying to get out of it, right? I think it's really challenging if what you're looking for to join someone else's startup is like the giant payday. Not that you won't make money of it, but if, you know, depending on your expectations, you, you might just need to be the founder yourself, right? And so I think there's a little bit of that. And so what are you trying to get at? What, like, what vision are you supporting there? And then I think the third thing is a little bit of your role, but, you know, depending how early you start, it's, it's going to change. It's going to change drastically what you think it is. All of a sudden, either you will or will not be good at it, or the company will likely need something really different over time. So the third thing I think you have to hold really loosely to, I think for folks who are holding really tight to, I'm going to have this job and it's going to mean this one, two, three years from now, I think that's actually really hard for an early stage company. And those are probably the folks that I've talked to that I say, like, actually, really, let's question to start up may sound sexy, but do you actually want to do this? And, you know, what are your reasons or motivations behind it? Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I think about a particular person in my life right now who is like at a early stage startup and they've done well, but there's some weird stuff happening and they're trying to decide, you know, should I stick with this or not? And yeah. um, it's just interesting to hear you say that you're really evaluating like the founders and their values, like, and especially I think in the hard times, um, cause I think it, it can be hard to join something small when you feel like you're lucky to get the shot. But the truth is like, also you're investing your time and energy and you're betting on them. Right. It's interesting. Cause like you made that bet with your career and you got in there, it scaled massively. And then you also, there's a lot of other stuff to talk about, like things we can go deeper on that you already talked about, but like, you know, even when you make a decision like uh, we want to expand into other brands, that is a huge decision, right? Like that is yeah. enormous in terms of the amount of resources that go into this. And in your case, like manufacturing physical goods and people's livelihoods and like, will we raise the next round and stuff? All these things, like it ultimately comes back to like values and communication and like how you work with those core people, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think it's going to be all of your daily moments where you'll see this decision making come to play and how they treat other people. And my sense is if you have even the littlest spidey sense that it's not right, or you're already in the company and you're saying things you don't like, or it makes you feel uncomfortable inside, you probably know the answer. Um, and that's hard though. It's hard to like trust your gut and leave or trust your gut and be like, I'm going to pass this up and here's why. And also, you know, the same startup or culture is not for everybody. So you got to find the one that fits you. And hopefully you're able to contribute to it and, and grow it as well. Let's go back to you took the job, men's shaving yeah. brand. Um, so what did you do when you got there? Were you like, oh, what is it like to like, <laughs> you know, were you finding, you know, like what happened with that? Yeah. You know, I shaved a lot of other guys' faces. Like, I, I didn't think, really like, want to ask that, but for some reason, uh, I, no, totally. I, I started to it, do you, this. <laughs> that you have to. I First of all, I was like, okay, I got to do, I'm like a, you know, if it wasn't obvious from my health advocacy stories, like I'm like a research kind of person. I want to know what I need to know and like gain an expertise. And, you know, I'm not a engineer or a chemist or anything like that, or, or, you know, I don't even have like a 
industrial design background. And so everything I've been doing in the startup world has been just like reading, talking, learning from others and like trial by fire, which is something I love. And so I think the first thing for me is I had to go buy a bunch of men's razors and just try them on people because it's not the same. And surprisingly enough, you know, sensorially, you can feel a difference, even if it's not on your face. You can feel where the blade, how it cuts on through the hair, if it's tugging or not, how rough it is, how many passes you can do. And then eventually I actually got trained on this. There's these um, sensory panels. It's actually really amazing. So shaving is one of those things where you can't measure like black and white. It's a 70%. It's an 80% because it's so much touch and feel. Mm -hmm. So we have these um, human instruments essentially that you train and they stand at these stations and the water is the exact same temperature across the amount of shaving cream dollop is the same <laughs> as across, right? And you're training them to be like human instruments. So you say like, you take a stroke and you write something down and you kind of start to weed people out of your panel who aren't as sensitive as other people. And that way, you know, if you make a tiny difference on the blade edge, for example, you'll be able to pick it up in this sort of human instrument. Wait, panel. wait hold so on, I hold went on, and hold got on. Trained. You're saying they're human instrument. So you don't mean like they make a noise to like, you know, when you're shaving properly, <laughs> you, you mean... <laughs> You mean that well, they write it down. They write it down. Okay, I thought literally yeah. you were like, oh, okay, like you know, you have people like singing in harmony. No, okay, um, no, but you're saying people who are like highly, highly sensitive. Highly sensitive, yeah. Okay, and then they're trained over time to be even more sensitive as like a panel as a whole, which I find like so that's very fascinating. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I I took the the same training on somebody else's face so that I could feel. Yeah. And, you know, I'm like very proud of myself when it works, when my team hands me two prototypes and it's prototype A and B, and they tell me like, oh, you, you tell us which one and I'm able to pick it out. Wow, yes. that's cool. Like my human instrument training is working. That's crazy. That's like a sommelier, but of shaving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of men's facial hair shaving sommelier. <laughs> it's way sexier, by the way. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. I mean, I guess that, that makes perfect sense that you would do that. And it also seems very thoughtful and like also seems like an efficient way to make your product better. But it's like, these are the things you don't imagine. Yeah. I don't imagine this. That's very cool. I mean, you know, we do all types of research here, but it's like people sitting in front of computers using an interface. Right. And so you just track that. It's just, I guess that's, this, this, this is the same version of that. Yeah. It's definitely the same version. Of that. I, I had a lot to learn, a lot to learn about the engineering space. The shaving technology and patent landscape is very robust. It's super interesting. I had no idea um, how complicated it was and how much it was actually used as a, like a competitive advantage of a strategy to be able to patent different ideas in the space and how it leads to different manufacturing outcomes and what's truly proprietary or not. And so I had a lot to learn, which is part of the fun. And when you, you said that the industry has changed a lot, like what was it like in 2013 and what, what's happening now? Yeah, there was one dominant player, Gillette, and Gillette is a, like a formidable competitor in, in this space. Um, multiple lines of products, different price points, slightly different nuances per product, addressing different customer segments, and one smaller player, uh, which is Schick or Edgewell here in the U.S. at least. Um, and, you know, that sort of market share picture is relatively true kind of throughout the world, uh, especially in the more industrialized world. And that was it for a long time. Um, and I think with the rise of a bunch of sort of digital online brands and shaving, first of Dollar Shave Club, then with us, and then and so on and so forth, 
what you've seen is a real change in the pricing dynamics there, I think, first. Second is the proliferation of brands that are coming into the space. I think before there was one brand, the really the core brand in Gillette and having different lines. And then sort of as the customer has evolved over time, just thinking about, well, does this brand actually resonate with me? And what we really found was guys weren't resonating to the kind of Gillette, the best a man can get, you know, like you got to be the top dog. You have to be Superman or Tom Brady, <laughs> or whoever it was on the advertising and the the design of the handle. You know, we like to say, look, a little bit like an outer, you know, outer space spacecraft with like all the bells and whistles to show your technology and their technology, you know, it, it is great. And so it wasn't resonating with the customers and the price point definitely wasn't as well. So there was a real opportunity for us to come in, offer a product that was speaking to the customer, was meeting his needs and also at, you know, half the price. And that sort of combination, it's really hard to get all three things right. And not every industry has that opportunity at any given point in time, but there certainly was there. And now you see there's like a ton of different entrants. Um, Gillette themselves have launched a bunch of other brands within their portfolio as well that have sort of rotated in and out, trying to kind of emulate and follow this like surge of new consumer brands that we've been seeing in a lot of categories, not just shaving. And how has that changed how you think about competition? Because like you came in Challenger brand versus Gillette, and now there's like much more. Is that something that you all think about? Do you watch really closely? What's your approach there? Yeah, I mean, we do watch it closely. It's really important for us to understand how everything is playing out. I still believe that Gillette is the main competitor. You know, they they have a dominant share still. They own a lot of technology and it's still the person to focus on from a competitive view. But I think when we're we're thinking about our brands and products, it's less focused on the other brand competitor. It's more focused on where is this customer going? So as an example, we found that a lot of younger consumers, you know, modern consumers that we were targeting, for example, he was actually more concerned about the comfort of his shave. Like if he does a lot of passes, how does it feel? Where some of the older generation consumers that were still using Gillette, he was more focused on the closeness, not wanting the five o'clock shadow, like really having a really tight shave. So you're not seeing anything at all. And that's just like a big difference because the technology plays out differently, how you communicate to the customer. And so I think more than anything, we're keeping a really close eye on the customer. You know, the pandemic changed a lot of consumer behaviors, how they shop, what they care about. And I think it's really that that we're following more than what any one competitor is doing. And did the pandemic change how people want to shave? I mean, I think probably the thing you saw most is a lot of beards, yeah. just like you, yeah. <laughs> like a lot of beards, right? You don't need to. I mean, our, our team has yeah. a lot of beards, yeah. too. I think that's probably part of it. Um but on the other hand, you know, everyone has just spent two years looking at a reflection of themselves. And so there's a, certainly more awareness to grooming and what grooming on a good day or a bad day looks like. Um, and then there's just probably bigger trends that we're seeing where, you know, customers are more concerned about their impact on the world, the impact on their communities, how they're feeling about themselves, how their communities feeling about themselves. And so you know, when we think about sort of like grooming products, at the end of the day, a lot of how much effort you put into it, what you're thinking about it is related to the confidence and the self-worth and your self-manifestation. So these reflections on the world and what's happening and how people are feeling in their own heads, they're actually really tied together. And I think that's some of the biggest things that we have 
sort of focused on is like really understanding where our customers' minds are at and what could be important to them going forward. Have you needed to translate like the brand messaging to match that? I wouldn't say it's necessarily to match the mindset from the pandemic. I think it is continuing to evolve the messaging as we hear more what is like relevant to the guys. Like a lot of what we found uh, for our target customer, he is really interested in this journey. He sort of has like an intrinsic drive to continue to make progress in the world and believes in that, right? And so um, for our brand, it's less about, you know, looking good to sort of fulfill an outwardly appearance in the world. It is, it's more intrinsically driven. And so we've been able to communicate with him by really reflecting back that we understand how he's feeling. And that's why we're here and to support him. Very interesting. Yeah. It's, it's like you're in the psyche of your customer, right? And like, obviously a lot of people talk about like personas, but you really seem to know what, how, like, it's almost like when the decision is about how you feel about yourself, it's like, how does, how does this, how does this guy tick? And like, if you can help him feel better because he is, has a more comfortable shave or it no five o'clock shadow or whatever that thing is like you link those things together and that's ultimately what you're marketing and selling. Yeah, absolutely. That's cool. I don't think about this that much in terms of like the role that consumer products play in my life, but obviously they play a huge role and it's like some of the things that we interact with the most. There's a reason why <laughs> consumer packaged goods is so enormous of a category. <laughs> so it's cool to think about that because I just don't think about it every day. Um, Okay, let's talk about expansion. And there's a lot here. I mean, I think we should start with Flamingo and then we can go to cat food. But I think like, <laughs> start with the logical <laughs> one to me and then let's go to like, what is, how do you expand to four brands and, and have, you know, razors and, and cat food? Yeah, so Flamingo, it's actually was many years in the making before we launched it. And it started right at home, right? A lot of women work at Harry's, they were using Harry's products. And, you know, they were talking about, oh, this really works, but this, you know, this doesn't quite work as well. And so we were getting firsthand information and we knew that there was a large part of the population. We probably weren't serving as well with our products. And so it actually took years to really fine tune. Well, let's learn about her. Let's understand what she needs and kind of grow from there. And so that's really like Flamingo really was a homegrown initiative and idea because so many women on the team were like, okay, these are the things that are not working for us. And this is what we need, which I found really exciting. It was fun to create something that, you know, could generate so much buzz even internally mm -hmm. for us. Um, and we found that for our, our women, like, you know, going back to sort of the psyche and the mindset with the consumer, like talk about night and day, you know, for women, it was like a chore. It was like, oh, shit, I got to get rid of this. Or like, if I'm going to be in a bathing suit, I got to wax that. And like, how much time do I spend between waxing this thing versus that thing? And like, it, it became like a whole thing. And it was every part of the body, not just armpits and legs and bikini area. It was like, we heard stories about hair on their back, hair on their upper lip, one weird hair on their toe. Like we got everything. And it was this chore. But for men, shaving was like, sense of taking care of yourself. Mm. It was grooming. My dad taught me how there's all this like ritual time to myself. And so talk about really different <laughs> mindsets. And if you're thinking about that customer, like, okay, well, let's understand what she's doing today. And, you know, women don't just use razors. They use tweezers and wax strips and depilatories and like almost anything threading, like 
there's a million different things that they use for different parts of the body on four different occasions. And so really understanding that mindset is what got us really excited about Flamingo and the opportunity there. I love how different the customers are. Because I feel like you're giving us a masterclass on understanding your customer and understanding like and putting them into personas and acting differently and building different products and messaging differently and all that stuff. Because it's so easy to not think that way, especially if you have like lots of funding. I think it's like pretty easy to not think that way. It's just Mm -hmm. easy to be like, we need to make this new line of business go Um, versus like we think there's an opportunity because all of us who are working here can use this product and we see gaps and now let's go research it. And now let's go. I mean, it's like, this is how you build great products, right? Yeah. And to be honest, it's a little bit of like, um, that moment of like slow down to speed up, I think is really true here. So if you take this moment to really understand the customer and and whatever that means for you, it doesn't always have to be like a 5,000 person, you know, you, you can do it in different scrappy ways. But if you take that moment to really understand what is important, what the pain points are, how the customer is really thinking, all the questions that come later, like how do we design this? Should we prioritize that? How do we launch? How do we communicate? They're, they're sort of like answered for you. But we found if we didn't take time to do that ever, it would just be much slower later, really building up into the launch of something. Yeah. And I think it's such a common mistake to just be like, oh, I need these features or I need this new product and you go build it without doing that. And then later you're like, well, how do I adapt this for the people who are using it? It's like, oh, actually that's a big gap. I'm I'm (laughs) looking across that gap. And it is that slowing down to speed up. I would say we didn't learn it early enough for us where it's like, Hmm. we were basically early days, the support requests that were coming in were our core customer and we just did what they asked for. And then we saw themes like, oh, we can make, we can fundamentally change the product and we'll serve the customer better. And then we like started guessing at what people wanted at a point in time. And that didn't go well, as you can imagine. (laughs) Um, And then we got back to like just huge amounts of research and really understanding Mm -hmm. the customer. And we have all these new things to work on now. And some of them from the outside don't look that different. And when you get into the details, they're night and day different because like we Mm -hmm. understand the problems that our customers have and like exactly what the pain is and like why we can, you know, save them time or let them do something they can do otherwise. But without the research, we would just be flying blind, right? Which is interesting because that's a, that is such a big transition. Because early days you can't take that much time to do the research. Often, like unless you're really well funded, and even then, you, how'd you get that well funded? Like it's somewhere someone had to take a risk, you know? Yeah, yeah. I I do think though you can like call your ten friends, you know, and like doing some of totally. these focus groups. It's remarkable how much richness you can get from that. So. I think always finding a little bit of time just to do some scrappy, like talk to 10 people or something. And also if you're hanging out at a Target or something and you see somebody looking at a shelf, it's re- it's amazing what you can say, hey, can I ask you a question about this? Yeah. What you'll get. So uh, I think there's always a little bit of a scrappy way. Yeah, there's a scrappy way. I just think it's easy to not, It's especially if your stuff's growing, it's easy to think you know hmm. what's up. Is like, yeah, yeah, you get higher in your own supply, basically. Like, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and then you go off, <laughs> off in the wrong direction. Well, so yeah, who are the 10 people that you called to figure out that you should diversify into cat food? <laughs> <laughs> so cat food came from an employee within Harry's. He fostered cats, like, you know, on his free time, huge love for cats. And sort of the nugget there that he really articulated. And then we're like, oh, that's really interesting. Let's deep dive it was that. 
cat parents are like second class citizens. Everything's made for dogs, mm. like all the cute commercials, the food, the toys. And there was a real like stigma around being like a cat person or cat lady or, you know, whatever it is. Right. And so like, dude, why are cat parents second class citizens? Like there is no brand that's this actually the just brand. designed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so that was the nugget that sort of sent us running. I'm like, oh, let's see. Is there a pain point? Like, is this Insight Rails? Was that one employee in N of one? And we found that it wasn't an N of one and that cat needs and nutrition and, you know, their finicky tastes and all that stuff. They were actually just totally different than dogs. Surprise, surprise. Um, and so that's how the sort of idea kind of came to life and sort of set off from there. And is that like, what makes this similar? Is it that it's a challenger brand and that Harry's is a challenger brand? Like, how did it make sense for this to be within one company? Yeah, I think the biggest thing here is really identifying a pain point that exists. And is it like a sharp enough pain point? Does it matter to enough people? And then lastly, like being honest with ourselves, can we do something about it? Right. Like what are our capabilities to be able to reach that customer, talk to that customer, design for that customer? I think it's the, more the combination of that. I think the outcome is that you can be a challenger brand if you've sort of thought through and answered all those things. But the heart really is, you know, is this a customer problem that's real that we as Harry's is well suited to serve or not? And, you know, will it benefit from being in our ecosystem? which is why you're seeing stuff like, you know, personal care, grooming and like cat food, which seems very different if you use yeah. a traditional sort of category mindset. But if you if you think about it from a pain point perspective, there's actually a lot of crossover, selling it on DTC, like designing product that communicates well to people, like all of that stuff. There's actually more similarities and differences there. Except for the fact that you can't talk to the cat. And so that's been the newest <laughs> Yeah, do you, you don't have any cat us. instruments or do you? Do you have cat instruments? <laughs> now I feel like you probably do. There's like the food out and they come and how loud I mean, is their purring? Sort of like, <laughs> you do have to like test it on cats. Yeah. Um, who apparently I learned don't like to eat the same, like you can dog, you can like pour the same giant bag of dog food like over and over again. They like eat whatever is in front of them. But like cats, they're like, nah, you know, I'm not feeling like tuna today. I maybe want salmon or something, you know, like, just like has its own personality and taste. I don't have a cat, so I don't know. So it's all like learnings I've had from the brand. But I have a lot of respect for cats, but they really scare me. Just putting that out there. You're afraid of cats? <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. They're unpredictable. And they are. I feel like they are so much more human. Like there's something about them that I'm just like, you know too much, cats. But <laughs> I digress. I feel like you've been influenced by big dog. <laughs> Uh, it's a bad I don't joke. know. Uh, Very yeah. bad joke. <laughs> um, okay. And then, so you have Harry's, mm -hmm. which is for men. You have Flamingo, or people who identify as men. Um, you have Flamingo for people who identify as women, or any other mm -hmm. way, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. And then you have Cat Person. And, mm -hmm. like, obviously, you see the similarities. Um, from a business perspective, was this, like a challenge to sell people on that like, hey, we should expand in this way that seems so different? Or how did that work at this scale? Um, it wasn't really. I mean, internally, it definitely wasn't. People easily understood, oh, like 
that makes sense. When I explain that cat parents are feel like second class citizens, it resonates really quickly. Hmm. Like the elevator pitch is is sort of easy from that perspective. Hmm. And then when you sort of size the market, how big is it? You know, how many cat parents are there in the US, et cetera. And the fact that you'd launch in DTC, you can quickly see, okay, well, where could our capabilities really help here? So internally, I'd say there wasn't, and there's actually a lot of excitement to really go do something that's a little bit different and learn from a new space. Um, I don't think externally there really was as well in terms of like with our investors. I think they really believe that if we could disrupt in one category with big competitors, we could do it again in, a, in another category as long as we were really focused on, you know, keeping the same sort of business values around the customer and really focusing on how to grow that in a mindful way. But no, I think for the most part, there was a lot of excitement across the board. Yeah, that's amazing. Because I, I guess it's if it does come back down to like values and mission. Yeah. But I think it's easy to underestimate that actually, in terms of from the outside, it's like, because you're you're saying this is so obvious to me from the outside what didn't seem obvious before. <laughs> but as you start to go towards, oh, this is a challenger brand. There's a there category here, which has like established brands that are not changing and not they don't know the customer very well. And like, we know the customer really well. And we can get there. And also, it seems like this wouldn't be possible, except for the fact that it's direct to consumer, right? Like if this was pre-internet, this seems like a much harder pivot. But for you all, it seems like you probably just made a new website and suddenly people are buying it. Yeah, yeah. And the mission, to your point, really does hold it. Like our sort of like internal mission is create things people like more. It's very simple. I think the words are very intentional things being things as in the product sense, but also things like a new process. It could be an internal process or a new performance review process, for example. So things in its broadest sense, people sort of like a real expression of all humans. And then like more is really that, you know, that thing needs a reason to exist, right? It has to be better than something already there. It can't just be a copycat. And it also has a little bit of a sense of continuous improvement, right? Like, like more. And so you're able to continually improve your products, launch new things, like evolve with the customer, with, you know, with the category, for example. So I think in that statement really helps to shape how we think about problems or opportunities, big and small, whether that is a new brand or a new product launch or something um, or a new service on our platform, like they all have a little bit of that mindset, which sort of fosters a common way to think about decisions that we have to make together. Love that. Um, okay. You've been at Harry's for about a decade. I think that's yeah. right, right? Just cool decade. Um, as a chief commercial officer, what's your favorite part of the job? Favorite? I, I would say there's like two like branches of stuff that I really, <laughs> really enjoy. Like one bucket of stuff is I love the nitty gritty when it comes to product, whether it's like sitting with uh, you know, a group of designers and really looking at like, you know, what what's the new handle form and shape and you know what inspired this and things like that, or fragrance sessions where you're smelling, you're telling stories to make come to life. That's like the one of the most fun activities for me at least, really kind of bringing that to life or like reviewing performance on product like results. And so that whole bucket of stuff, like the actual making, going to the factory, manifesting an idea from somebody's head to a physical thing in my hand that performs well, that we can get great customer feedback on. Like that is 
by far like probably one of my favorite things to really do. And then the second part for me is really watching people grow. Um, you know, my first hire at Harry's, I guess eight and a half years ago, whatever it is now, he leads our full technology and manufacturing stack, you know? So, and <laughs> when he started from when he, where he is now, like it's been so fun to support him on this journey, watch him grow. Um, and actually also learn a lot about how I should be as, as, as a manager, you know, how I can grow and sort of like that development and that partnership along the way. And we've accomplished a lot of really great and fun things together. Like that's tremendous to me. Like, I think I am most energized about, you know, going to work or logging into zoom, I guess these days, <laughs> um, because of the people that I'm sharing it with, you know, I feel like I, Oftentimes, like in inter you know, interviews, people are like, oh, you know, why are you at Harry's so long? You know, if we're interviewing new candidates. And for me, I still feel like, like, you know, you're in college and you have like a group project and you're like, oh, I'm going to work with that person, my friend over there and that. <laughs> right. And then you're like, OK, it's late night. You guys are like, you're trying to grind something out, you know, like, but, you know, you can just sort of depend. on. I still feel like I've picked my project team and we're going to like deliver the thing for the win, you know, for the A or whatever it is. Um, and that if we all like kind of mess up a little, it's okay. Like we all understand where we're coming from. It's human, it's normal. And so that human aspect of it is really important to me. Like um, even with 600 people, it still feels like I picked my project team. Yeah, that's amazing. And I, I think it's a really beautiful way to end because I think like what you've done is really rare and it's amazing. And I, I think like going back to the like, it actually matters how it's done and it matters who you're doing it with is like this secret, right? Like that's the great secret of all of this. Like if it's actually fun and engaging and your team is constantly evolving and constantly getting, you know, hopefully better and better for the problems you're trying to solve, that is how you create great stuff. So I just love that as like a, um, as like a takeaway for anyone listening is like search for what B has, right? Like find people who bring you joy in the work and try to put yourself in a position to take that risk um because you never know like you might be building a harry's and someday you might be you might be making cat food um and that's that's <laughs> that's all our dream we we all want to be able to make a pivot like that um b thank you so much for being here with us this was really great how can people connect or find you if they want to learn more so believe it or not linkedin is actually the best way to find me i know i sound very old school when I say that, but all good on all the social platforms. I don't tend to respond if I'm honest. <laughs> okay. LinkedIn, LinkedIn it is. Um, well, <laughs> thanks for being here and have a great day. Thank you. I mean, you're telling me a razor company is making cat foods. This is some wild stuff. You don't see uh, product extensions like this every day. You don't, but uh, B really kind of mapped out this this unique kind of insight between like razor customers and cat people. <laughs> cat people. Cat mm -hmm. people. Yes, cat people. Say it again. Cat people. Yes. Yeah, that was... I mean, I, I didn't really realize... Like you'd said before, like the, the cat food thing, I was like, all right, I, I, th this must be incorrect. Like, so all these <laughs> research is wrong. Um, the research is bad. <laughs> yeah, but I thought it was interesting just like the idea of like, these are people who are usually forgotten about effectively. Like, we all have dog people in our lives. We sure do. And uh, <laughs> the idea that there's just like, there are cat people 
and they've been overlooked and they just need someone to pay attention to what their needs are and like, oh, you're going to make even better food and cats are care about like what's in their food more than dogs. Like a dog will eat the same thing every day, but a cat won't. Because cats are, I said this in the interview and I feel like neither of you could get on board, but I was saying cats are crazy. They are very people-like. Yes, more divergent in terms of like, you know, you can see a cat's personality. Like this cat sits by the window. This one lives in the attic. Um, this one lives on a witch's broom. They have room. preferences. They have yeah. preferences. They have strong preferences. But it was more about like, you know, if you're building a brand, if the brand is what matters and you're connecting with the cat owner, the cat parent. The cat parent. And they're, they're overlooked and no one's really paying attention to them. No one's listening to them. And then here's a brand that's doing that. It makes sense that that would connect. I just wouldn't expect it normally to be razors and cat food. But, you know. Completely. I guess we should all feel empowered by this. Yeah. I feel empowered. But something else in the interview, I just thought it was it was great how, as a chief commercial officer, B loves getting in there with, like, the product. She was yeah. talking about shaving faces. Yeah. Like, Love that. very hands-on and in a way that obviously makes such a difference in the brand, in the product. Well, so much of this stuff is so simple, right? Like, it's just understand your customer's experience, like understand what their problems are. It's sometimes hard. It's hard to actually get in there and do the work, right? Like, if you're making razors and you don't shave your face, you want to go, like, be shaving other people's faces, like, six times a day until you get really good. Like, right. it's... Seems like a funny thing. It's like in someone else's personal space, like all this stuff. Um, but obviously you do the work and you figure it out. And then, yes, you can see the difference between the products that you're building and you build better products. Simple. The idea is simple. The work is hard. The work is hard. The work, the is, work hard. is hard. That's why when you're doing the work, you should listen to us. We'll be your pals <laughs> on the journey. Uh, we're here. We're here. Ready to make you laugh. Ready to help <laughs> you learn. That's what it's all about. So if you are laughing, if you are learning, um, you know, please rate and review us wherever you listen to the podcast. Um, shoot us out a tweet. Get a tweet out there. Ooh, I like on it. On the Twitterverse. I like it. And if you have feedback, if you have ideas for us, you can send it to ttlpod at wistia.com. Um, that's it for us. Have a great day, everyone. And I will talk to you soon, Sylvie. Yes, sir. Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia, hosted by Chris Savage, produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day. Executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Maria Passingham of Edit Audio. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com.